Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben, we're back. We are covering DNC 6 through 9 tonight. And man, what a, what are some amazing sections. You know, we were talking a little bit here before and going over and there's there's so much rich doctrine that's here and what I love a lot about this is that last week we talked a little bit about this idea that God has these moments of awe and then there's sometimes there's an exception that pulls into it and you're like, you know, it's like here's God and yeah and then all of a sudden there's there's this moment where God is like, yeah, here's the awe of God and here's the mercy of God and the love of God. And then the next verse comes along and God's like, yeah, but if you don't live up to it and if you don't do this and if you don't do this, you're going to be destroyed. And that happens a lot. But here in these sections, it's just like this merciful, kind, loving God is coming all over this place and he's consistently telling him to go to peace. He's consistently saying, don't fear. He's saying, hey, even when you didn't do it quite right, that's okay. You're not under condemnation. I don't condemn you. And it's just this, it's like a cheerleader throughout these sections. And I absolutely love it. In these sections we have, they're all talking about Oliver Cowdery. And this is, uh, they're all in April, 1829. And just for a little bit of contextual history, you know, the church is organized a year from now in 1830. So, so this is a year before the church is organized. They're still going through and getting into the Book of Mormon. And Oliver now is helping to translate the Book of Mormon. There's a little bit of a history of Oliver coming into helping out Joseph and being introduced to Joseph and having Joseph utilize his talents. But in these sections, we're also going to be able to talk about some really interesting information about Oliver's divining capabilities, which is a really interesting aside from what we typically mm-hmm. would uh, study from these and his ability of using a divining rod to find things. And, and there's some other fun stories that we have uh, in connection to that. But man, just to start us off here in section six, there were some things that you and I were talking about because here in verse two, it opens right up. It says, behold, I am God. Give heed unto my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow, therefore give heed unto my words. And man, if we read that with Western eyes, you know, the, the standard way of looking at this is that we're going to say, man, here's that God again who's coming out to destroy. You know, all of this imagery of the sword, right? He's coming out to destroy, to lay waste, to basically burn everything, burn the wicked, all the bad people get theirs, right? But this sharp and powerful like a two-edged sword, it's got some other meanings going on. You know, throughout the Old Testament and through a lot of the scriptures, we have God coming out and saying that his word is as sharp as a two-edged sword, right? And so here we also have it again, that this that this word that he's going to speak is this really powerful weapon that is going to have. And as we were talking about that, Ben, you had brought up a, an article from the church that uh, really gives some great context to this. 
Yeah. So right on the church site, um, I was actually, <laughs> so, uh, I knew that there was more to this phrase. I had studied it before, but it'd been a while since, since I really kind of delved into some of the meanings behind it. This is used often in the old and new testaments as well as, as I'll read here. But, um, so I kind of Googled some things on it and one of the top results on this was a link to the church site with this explanation. And it was actually the best one of any of the ones that I ended up looking at. Here's what it says about a two-edged sword. So a two-edged sword first penetrates. So it says, through the spirit, God reveals things, quote, to our spirits precisely as though we had no bodies at all. That's from uh, Joseph Smith. His word can also cut through culture, habits, biases, preconceptions, and doubts to speak to the innermost part of us, whether we are righteous or wicked. When people hear his word preached with power, they are often pricked or pierced in their heart and desire to repent. In fact, the word of God has a more powerful effect on people's minds than the literal sword and is one of the catalysts for developing faith. The sword also divides. God's word can separate truth from error and divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil. So uh, I had to look up the word asunder because it's kind of archaic, not used anymore. Uh, asunder... I assumed from the word because it has under in it that it meant like bring down or destroy or, you know, uh, down to the dust, right? Bring it down. But asunder actually means to divide in two. Okay. So, so separating truth from error or, you know, in a lot of the context of, of the way that you talk about it, Shiloh, separating the false self from the true self, right? This goes on. It can help us identify the half truths and complications that cloud our thinking by setting them up against God's plain and precious truths. Wow. So if that's not a hermeneutic for reading the scriptures, I don't know what is, right? You know, being able to go and see, uh, okay, this is the God I know. This is not the God I know. Being able to see what points us to Christ and what doesn't. Just as Moroni talks about, right? Being able to judge what points to Christ and what doesn't. So here, the sword, uh, the word of God as revealed in the scriptures and teachings of living prophets is versatile and applicable in many situations for our blessing or condemnation, our edification, inspiration, instruction, or chastisement. Then lo below it talks about some of the, the meanings of these words. The image of the two-edged sword is a familiar one in both the Old and New Testaments. It is used in many contexts. In his analogy of the armor of God, the Apostle Paul compared the sword of the Spirit to the Word of God. In the Bible, both the Greek and Hebrew words for two-edged mean two-mouthed, referring to how the blade consumes what it touches. So this is also why we say a flaming sword because this all is, is just different ways of symbolizing or representing different types of imagery to get to the function of the word of God. Okay, it's a two-edged sword or two-mouthed because mouths consume things, or a flaming sword because fire consumes things. The two-mouthed is an apt um, symbol here because it, the mouth is also where speech is produced. So the original Bible languages inherently contain an association between a two-edged sword and the word. Okay. 
So in Hebrews 4.12, God's word is said to be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Greek word for quick means alive, living, lively. The Greek word for powerful means full of energy, energized, active, effective. So I just thought that was a really important point to make about these types of symbols and analogies that are used in the scriptures. That when the Lord's talking about a sword, his word being a sword or the sword of the spirit, this is not a violent sword. This is a representation of how the word of God acts upon our spirits, acts upon our biases, our false narratives, our sin, to remove that and help us come out into a true understanding of who he is. You know, Later in this section, we see, say, nothing but repentance unto this generation in verse 9. The implication of that here is that the entire point of this work is to get people to see God in a new way. So God's word is is getting cutting away all of that excess, that false dead wood, so to speak, right? Right. And I love here all this imagery of the sword that we're talking about because that, that reference in the way you began with talked about how – because that sounded like a reference to Alma 31.5 when it Correct. talked about yeah. how even the sword that the – the sword of the word of God had more powerful effect. And and we talked about that at great length when we were doing Alma 31.5. We also talked about it at great length when we were doing Alma 4. Because in Alma 4 verse, uh, oh, I can never remember. Is it 419 or 417? I think it's 419. <laughs> when it, <laughs> It's one of those two. I know it's on the, the right page, left column, halfway down. But right. it says that, that basically that Alma was was seeing that his people were going to be destroyed. Um, and they're, they're moving into destruction again, right? Because in Alma 1, we talked about how there was the war. That was when they very first had judges. Then Nehor comes about, and Alma, as the chief judge, ends up killing Nehor back, right? And that sets up the martyr scenario for Nehor, and, and, and a very prominent theme throughout the rest of the, the Book of Mormon in how we have to deal with the war chapters. And then a huge war ensues based off of all of the followers of Nehor, and it was so bad that it said every soul had caused to mourn. And then when they came back and they kind of started to heal from that over the next year or so, he starts to realize that his people are going right back into the same evil that had caused the first war. As the chief judge and also as the high priest of the church, so he holds the highest political and the highest religious office, he gives up the political office altogether because he says that, and in verse 19 it says, And this he did that he himself might go forth among the people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them, to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and the craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were by bearing down pure testimony against them. That sets up his whole missionary effort where he goes into Ammonihah, and then that also sets up the, the whole flavor of the sons of Mosiah going into the Lamanites. And so finally, when both of those stories conclude at the end of Alma 28, in Alma 31, Alma's called again to a mission, and he goes out to the Zoramites, and that's where we have in Alma 31.5 where he says, And now as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to that which was just, yea, it had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword, or anything else which had happened unto them, therefore Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. 
This is powerful stuff. This is really, really powerful because we have to start to recognize and acknowledge just how important this stuff is that we say we believe in, not just in creating good, happy lives at home, but that this actually has a really powerful way of healing our country and our nation. So when we send missionaries out, you know, we're sending people out and we have this idea that, hey, we're just going to go out and get people to baptize and get people to, uh, to come into the church. But this is much bigger than just bringing people into the church. When we truly act in the testimony of God, there's something that's completely different going on. There's a post I made on Facebook the other day that came from an article that I'm writing on uh, on one of the things we talked about with Moroni in a previous uh, podcast. But I had written and said that we often believe that Jesus Christ is going to return again in this grand millennial reign to set straight the bad things in the world by issuing death and destruction upon the wicked. This interpretation makes us have to wonder, however, just how weak and impractical Christ's Sermon on the Mount, his gospel of peace, and the general doctrines are if they can't actually beat the supposed evil forces, but require Jesus Christ himself to come and destroy. If Christ's sermon, his gospel, and his doctrines are not actually the very means by which we conquer and destroy evil, and that he uses to conquer and destroy evil— then what value and worth do they even have? Could it possibly be that the false self has projected an erroneous archetypal Christ, like the Jews in Jesus' day who sought for a political and militaristic Messiah, that perpetuates our doubts and unbelief in the true saving, mediating, and reconciling power and authority contained in Jesus Christ's sermon, gospel, and doctrines? You know, when Jesus said, I come here not to, not to bring peace, but a sword. You know, that verse in the New Testament mm-hmm. has been used over and over and over again, talking about, you know, so Jesus came for violence, right? Because he didn't come for peace, he came for a sword. But yet, if we're going to have that kind of interpretation, then it comes into conflict with Alma 31.5. So at this point, we're like, and I love that you had brought in the hermeneutic there, that filter by which we use to interpret the scriptures. We have to realize that unless we've actually done specific work to identify our bias that we come to the scriptures, we have a bias where we come to the scriptures. (laughs) (laughs) We always have a bias. That's just part of being human. We are trained, we're given language, we're given culture, we're given society, we're given traditions. All of these frame our narratives, all of our experiences, how we deal with those experiences, how people respond to the things that we live in our daily life. All of these things create frameworks, subconsciously even, that frame the way that we interpret scripture. So that when I sit down to Alma 31.5 and someone else stands up with a completely different life experience, we're going to be able to interpret and pull out different messages there. So in this, we are having to try to find ways of giving up our bias by choosing something specifically to use as the filter by which we see the scriptures. And so this is called a hermeneutic, a way that we go through and interpret scripture. And Ben, you and I have talked about this at some length, that the way that we are choosing to to interpret the scriptures this time through is through what's called a cruciform hermeneutic. It's it's a, a term that's borrowed from an author, an evangelical named Gregory Boyd. He wrote a book called Cross Vision, where he kind of coins this term. But it's this idea that you use you utilize the atonement of Jesus Christ, both in Gethsemane and in Calvary on the cross, and the Sermon on the Mount, as your filter and framework to reading the scriptures and find God. 
as we do that, we begin to realize that a completely different characteristic of the divine comes off the pages than what we do when we subconsciously bring our Western eyes to the text. And so, yeah, when, when we read here, I mean, and we, we've all just said all this just off of that, that verse two, off mm-hmm. of the sword analogy. So when, yeah, when he comes out and he's talking about how he's bringing his word, which is going to be powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, it's going to divide asunder. It's going to cut away the false self. That false self is the alter ego. It's this rotten, f- festering, flea-ridden, maggot-infested cloak that we wear over ourselves and pretend it's beautiful. <laughs> nice imagery. <laughs> right. If I can add some more adjectives to it. But if but it's just thing that we pull around us like it's like it's our security blanket and this false self is the identity and we see other people's dead corpses on themselves and we're like and we compare them and we see them and we think they're beautiful but it's the beautiful true self that was made in the image of God that is always already present underneath all of that we are made in the image of God and everything else on top of that is just the putrid and the festering egos and identities of this world that repentance literally becomes the the process by which we change. And so here in verse 9, I love that he says, Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. This is the Lord coming down. He's like, listen, I'm coming. I'm bringing my truth. I'm bringing this gospel. This gospel is coming back. We talked about the themes with Moroni and about the peace and the power and the healing and the reconciliation of the human family. We've got to learn to start to see God differently. The use of this symbol and imagery of the sword is a very powerful and um, uh, pervasive one throughout all of the scriptures. It is uh, primarily its origin is in the, or we might think its origin is in the concept of violence. So going back to the Book of Mormon, we have this civilization beginning with Nephi getting Laban's sword. Right, And this is the means by which he obtains the plates. This is the means by which he defends his people. This Having this sword is his kind of his claim to authority, right? It represents that authority. When we went into all of the sort of the Nephite narratives about how that starts informing Nephite narratives, and the issues that creates for the Nephites and how that's sort of this strong undertone to, to the whole Book of Mormon and discussion, and we don't necessarily have to get into that. Um, because we're just talking about this one verse in section six of the Doctrine and Covenants. <laughs> but um, it's so fascinating how the Lord then takes that, this this deeply culturally steeped um, literal uh, use of a sword that then becomes symbolic of authority and he co-ops it. Like, you know, this goes back to section one where the Lord says, I, I give commandments to my servants in their weakness according to their language. So the Lord uses this symbol of authority that we understand to mean something. And then he pulls it out and he says, okay, you know how the sword does this? Let me tell you how I work. So often prophets, when they're trying to express how this works, they're going to use these types of symbols and, and imagery. The symbol of the sword is related to all kinds of other things in the scripture. You know, we discussed uh, a couple times, and then you and Chris discussed as well, how the the iron rod in Lehi's vision is the same type of symbol as the sword that's coming out of the mouth of the cherubim, right? And 
we talked about how the rod is the word of God, right? So that, that really goes back to the sword. So a rod or a scepter, a scepter being a symbol of authority, but there's, there's such a stark difference between how the world views the literal sword in terms of state authority and power by threat of violence. If uh, you fit with under my power, it's on threat of death. Whereas the power of the word of God isn't unto death. The power of the word of God is unto life. And so we have these contrasting things here. Even though we use the sword as a symbol of the word, the literal sword is to death, but the word of God is life. And so it's a very fascinating, almost paradox type of imagery and symbolism that really helps get to the root of, of our cultural biases and makes us question those and say, where am I going to stand? Am I going to stand with the literal sword or am I going to, to really look to the Lord and what he's, what he's trying to lead me towards? How he's trying to lead me out of my cultural biases and violent tendencies towards a better way. I just love how it's this pervasive symbol throughout the scriptures that is really inviting us to something more. Yeah, I mean, even if you go into verse 3, it's talking, it says, Behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest. Therefore, whosoever desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with his might. So after we have this imagery of a violent sword, right? This incredibly sharp two-edged sword. What are you going to go use this two-edged sword for? And he immediately goes into this whole story about... Swords to plowshares, right? Swords to plowshares, almost, right? He's going into this harvesting and bringing in uh, your... Uh, your sickle with all your might. And I, I love in verse five, if you will ask of me, you shall receive. If you will knock, it shall be opened unto you. You know, I, I've always taken these verses about asking for God in ways of knowledge, you know, analytical knowledge, knowledge that I can process, that I can think about, that I can cogitate on. And, you know, really it's been in the last several years where I've started to, you know, and we've talked about it at length, this idea of experiencing God and to have truth through experience. We talked about this quite a bit in the First Vision podcast about uh, how Joseph would, had been arguing with these people. These people were arguing with themselves even about going to the scriptures, and they were a analytically arguing these scriptures one way or another. But it was the experience of being with God that had basically showed him that all of that was for naught. And then we bring him here into verse 6. Now, as I asked you, behold, I say unto you, keep my commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. You know, Zion is a place where you do beat your swords into plowshares, where you, you run there. It's, and, and we're going to find out later here in the DNC that anyone who will not take up their sword to come against their brother has to flee to Zion for safety. Not because Zion has the big guns, not because they're the ones that have all the missiles and the fortifications that are able to destroy, because those who follow the beatitude life are long-suffering. They are self-sacrificial lambs like the, the Lamb of God. They've learned how to, how to be able to do this for their brother. So when we flee to Zion for safety, it's not the kind of safety. Those who follow a beatitude life are already walking martyrs. They've already followed Christ to the cross in their heart. And so every day is a borrowed day. And that really sets the context for verse 7. Seek not for riches, but for wisdom. And behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you, and then shall ye be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. 
when I read this this time through, mystery is a you know these mysteries of God has been something that I've been really thinking about for quite some time, and the more that I have experienced thinking about these things and pondering has kind of become a, a weird word in the LDS vernacular, but hmm. pondering on this even, these are moments with God that are pure. And sometimes, as I, I've said before, that the, I don't even really sometimes recognize what's going on until after the fact. And then it's like, wait, was, what was that? And it's like there's this whisper of an experience that comes and you catch like a glimpse in retrospect. And you're like, wait, what was that thing that just came through? And you turn back, and that's what it means for the mystery for me, is that when we no longer seek for the riches, and and largely seeking for riches comes because of fear, fear and panic of the unknown, fear and panic for the things of the flesh. You know, we all need to eat. We all need to provide for ourselves. We all need basic food and shelter and clothing and and, and, and those things to sustain life. We also want to have the means to have great experiences, to take our family places, to, to give our children opportunities that, that we feel are important and that will serve them and will guide them and will, will bring them purpose and meaning in their life. And that's all wonderful. But to be able to sit with God for any moment of time doesn't cost anything. Except your time. The ability of just being there and letting go. And to truly experience the divine, those moments that I have in my life that I have truly been wrapped in the love of God, I would never give those experiences for all the money in the world. It just, it, it doesn't mean anything. Once you have those, you begin to have those and glimpse those and see those, you begin to see that what the world has to offer really isn't as wonderful and as shiny as you think it is. It's not a set. It doesn't satisfy. But I can keep on going back to those moments when I've experienced God. I've truly experienced and sat with God and he's been there with me. And I can keep going back to those moments and they keep refilling me and they keep replenishing my life and they keep bringing peace. Even in turmoil. Those are the moments that really, really are impactful. And so I, I love this. I love all of this kind of in context of that repentance and seeing God differently and just and just how happy God seems to be in these sections. <laughs> well, it is, you know, when, when you were talking before, we I kind of noticed that this is a little bit different tone than the sections before. It, it, it almost seems like, you know, Joseph, after this experience, is coming to see God in a little more pure of a way, right? And and is experiencing him in, in a slightly different way than the previous sections. And then he's able to share that with Oliver. In verse six, this phrase has actually often come to my mind and I've pondered <laughs> on it much, the cause of Zion. And I think that is a really interesting thing to, you know, not get too analytical, but to analyze. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, cause I do sometimes analyze and then, and then I try to sit with what I just analyzed. You know, I kind of do a little bit of the, bit of both of that because this, this phrase seems to indicate that Zion is an effect, not a cause. Okay. So what is it that we're establishing that causes Zion? 
You know, this goes back to your point about, you know, having to have Christ come and destroy all the wicked, right? Almost as if Zion is the cause of all of the righteousness, but that's getting the cart before the horse, right? It needs to have a Zion people to come to. In other words, what is the cause of Zion? What causes Zion to be established? You, you touched on it there when you were talking about this verse is that's the beatitude life, right? That's individuals on their own level taking up their cross and following Christ. And it doesn't require a huge society to do that to establish Zion. It doesn't require a huge society to cause that. What we're doing is we're trying to establish the cause of Zion. And it's not our job to guarantee some particular outcome or effect, right? But simply to follow Christ. And what happens, happens. But we know that the natural effect of living that lifestyle is that we will come to know others and come to know God in a way that the people of Zion are described. It says the Zion is the pure in heart. And what do the Beatitudes say about the pure in heart? They shall see God. I see that as the cause of Zion, right? Being able to see God everywhere in the scriptures, in ourselves, and then in each other. And that is how Zion will be brought about when we start seeing God in ourselves and others and around us then we start seeing what it means to be Zion. It's tied together. Oh man, I love that so much. I've never really considered Zion the effect. I'm going to sit on that one for a while. In fact, I wrote that down here in the margins of, uh, of that verse. Zion is an effect. And to live the cause. So much of our lives, we live with outcome-based ethics, mm -hmm. that we want a particular outcome, and so we try to do what we need to have that outcome. And so the outcome is largely always informed by our ego. It's always informed by that false self, is we want to project what the outcome is going to look like. And so we do, we put the cart before the horse. And I, I see this happening all the time, in fact, uh, with conversations about nonviolence, you know, I've talked about nonviolence for years and you've, and you've talked about it for years. Yeah. And inevitably, the very first kickback, the very first pushback that anyone ever gives whenever I talk to them for the first time about nonviolence is, oh, well, are you, if someone broke into your house, are you just not going to like, you just, just welcome them in to, to beat up or kidnap your children or to abuse your wife? You know, and that's always it. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah. it's, that's the example. And, Everybody wants to have the application before they understand the principle. And I did too. I did too. I remember the, in the first books that I read about nonviolence, I was looking for an answer to that question. I need something that works, right? Yeah. <laughs> does it, but does it work? Does it work? Can, does it can work? you really do it? Like, 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 give me the place where I can actually do this where it works, right? We do that all the time. We're looking for the outcome and for the security of the outcome before we proceed forward in faith. When we have to recognize that we live the principle, and then it's like the, the song, Come, Come, You Saints, and should we die before our journey's through, oh, happy day, all is well. Because this life is not about it, like the outcome of what we're going towards. It's 
can we learn to live in the truth of the moment? Now, th- this seems to fly in the face of some other things that we've said before, you know, about, uh, for instance, there is no right or wrong unless you have a direction or unless you have a destination, right? So, for instance, we have uh, the stories of, uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland with the Cheshire Cat, and she's like, which way should I go? And he's like, well, it doesn't matter. You go and go anywhere. And, and, and she says, well, where's the right way to go? And, he's, and she's like, well, it depends on where you want to go, right? So in, in a sense, we feel like we have to have the destination because that informs the journey about the right or wrong for the journey. But there's this other, there's this other standing principle about just being in the moment with God. And I think that really sets the stage for the mystery. Because at, at some point, we have to give up on the destination and just focus that it, I, this was a really harsh pill for me to swallow for about a year. That no matter how much I try to focus on what a celestial kingdom would be like, as, as my, cause, cause that's really the end goal that we really want, right? We want to go to the celestial kingdom. That's our carrot at the end of the stick. We keep on marching mm-hmm. towards this celestial kingdom. But the fact is, is I cannot comprehend the celestial kingdom. I can't even, I can't even comprehend a terrestrial kingdom. In fact, Joseph said that the, the bottom of the celestial kingdom is so beautiful that it, it surpasses what we have here. So if I can't even, if I can't even comprehend the basic bottom of the barrel, as it were. How am I going to, how am I, how is that celestial height really going to be a true and authentic motivator for me? You know, as my end destination and my goal. But yet Christ never really talked about us preparing ourselves for heaven, basically, you know, preparing for these things. Everything that Christ talked about in his earthly ministry was about experiencing heaven now mm-hmm. in the present. Right bringing that celestial life to the earth now through, and how do you do it? But through the Beatitudes. And so in verse 11, when the Lord brings up again, if thou wilt inquire, thou shalt know the mysteries which are great and marvelous. Therefore thou shalt exercise thy gift and thou mayest be found. Thou mayest find out the mysteries that thou mayest bring many to a knowledge of the truth. Yea, convince them of the errors of their ways. Again, these mysteries are largely moments with God that you can't, you just, you have no words for. But all you can really try to define are your experiences. And one of the things that I'm going to love talking about when we get into uh, John the Baptist here in the next few weeks is to read Oliver's words at the end of the DNC about how he describes his experience with John the Baptist. Because that's one of the most pure moments of, of textual holy writ in our scriptures where he just goes on and on and on about just being in the beauty of the moment with John the Baptist and the love yeah. and all, all, all that grandeur that pours over him. And so when we talk about these mysteries, that's what we're unfolding to people. We're bringing people into the conversation of God. It's not just about truth axioms and belief systems and true and accurate belief. It... It's about bringing people into that experience with God and letting God reveal to them the power of what he's going to reveal to them. I'm going to make a short allusion here because you said, you almost said this, and I'm reading some a popular uh, fantasy series books right now. And in them, there's this phrase that's journey before destination. And it's the idea that we're not so concerned with the destination that we forget to actually experience the journey. 
right? And that's kind of what you were you were talking yeah. about that that the destination is wrapped up in the journey, but but we only can understand the destination when we experience the journey. Yeah, I like that a lot. In this section, there's an allusion to the gift that Oliver has. We won't, we don't get into more detail to it until section nine. So maybe we'll save that till till we get there. But I really like how you brought up this too when we were talking about it before. But I doubly marked it in verse nineteen. Uh, the Lord gives him some some pretty profound advice here. I guess it's advice when the Lord tells you something. <laughs> is it advice? <laughs> Probably. I don't know if that's the right word for it or not. Advice but, seems like a little bit weak for what God has. Yes, we can a little go with weak. Advice. advice. <laughs> is it advice when it's from God? <laughs> so counsel, counsel's a little more stately, right? He says, admonish him in his faults and also receive admonition of him. Um, that's really quite a phrase that, that to me speaks of meekness, right? That we're willing to receive admonition from others, and we're also willing to give it in a loving way. I really like that here, that it talks to the relationship between Joseph and Oliver, that they're to admonish each other. There could probably be books written about the relationship between Joseph and Oliver, uh, just that. And it gets complicated and, and difficult. But this phrase right here, it just speaks to the the things they're going to be going through as they translate and try to publish the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I love that this is in April of 1829. And then section 121 comes along, you know, back in 1839. So several years later, but yet we're still having the same kind of theme that when we talk about how the power of the priesthood is by persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness, meekness, love, kindness, pure knowledge, we only reprove with sharpness. And there's that, there's that uh, going back to the sword. Yeah, We only prove with sharpness, yeah, right, from the Holy Ghost. But it has to be in the spirit of persuasion, gentleness, meekness, love, long-suffering, all of those qualities. If our reproof is not completely rooted in kindness and meekness and long-suffering and gentleness, that is not of God. There is no authority of the priesthood or any authority of the Spirit or of God or any moving upon by the Holy Ghost unless it is by all of those qualities. Then we have to actually increase the love afterwards. And so when we see this here in 1829 in section 6, Admonish him in his faults and also receive admonition from him, but be patient and sober and temperate and and have patience and faith and hope and charity. Almost reflecting what they're going to get later on is the same message. Yeah, we can reprove each other, but it's always in this spirit of just brotherly kindness and meekness and moving towards the kind of the, the grandeur and the awe of God. I love that a lot. And even over here in verse 35, towards the end of the section, I love it because there's two times where the Lord says this in the readings today. He says, Behold, I condemn you not. Go your ways and sin no more. Fear not to do good, my sons, for whatever you sow, so shall ye reap. Therefore, sow good, and you shall reap good for your reward. I mean, all of this language is highly encouraging. I mean, yeah, it's a completely different, <laughs> it's a completely different reading than when Joseph was weighed down by guilt <laughs> for losing. Yeah, him. yeah, it is, it does. You know, that is interesting how his guilt and difficulty and depression was really flavoring his view of God. Not that it was wrong, but it's just so fascinating how that happens to us, right? And as we become aware of that fact, it really speaks in a profound way to how we can each better communicate with God. 
Yeah, absolutely. In section seven, we have this, it's kind of an interesting insert because this is where we have Joseph and Oliver were questioning whether or not John the, John the Beloved was going to live forever. And so they mm-hmm. ended up receiving a little bit of uh, instruction there as per John the Beloved that he did live. Uh, he was given that gift. In section eight, this begins to open up this other idea to Oliver where, and all of these again are in sec, are in April of 1829. So all of these sections are coming really fast right off the back of each other in the same month. And so the Lord comes out and he's urging Oliver to increase his gifts. And so he identifies for Oliver that Oliver has two gifts, and one of them is kind of a subset of the first. In verse 3 of section 8, he says, and now behold, well, I'm going to start in verse 2. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, I love that Moses and the Red Sea, even in 1829, is still being used. <laughs> this this story, my so, goodness, it's... Yeah, yeah. So iconic. It's everywhere. Yeah. So we have that Oliver is given the spirit of revelation, but then it's given up, but this is not the only gift for... You have yet another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, and behold, it has told you many things. But there is no other power, save it be the power of God, that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. So, all right. This is some pretty interesting history. You're opening up a can of worms now, aren't you? Opening up a can. So this is, this is pretty fun. So in the original Book of Commandments, uh, what, 1832, 1833, where it says gift of Aaron, originally said the gift of the rod not of Aaron. Now, Oliver Cowdery, even before he met Joseph Smith, there are records that he was actually really good at divining or, or rod dousing. You know, if, if people ever heard about this. So for those who haven't heard about it before, is it's where people through centuries and millennia have gone out with a stick or a, a tool, some kind of imbued object, and they'll usually ask a question out loud. And then if the stick starts to move or it might start to actually lean or point in a direction on its own merit and accord. As just a personal note, I've uh, growing up in my family, I've known people who've done this. Nobody in my family, but I've known other people who are family friends who have done this. And I've seen some pretty interesting things in my life. Things that at least still make me scratch my chin and go, huh, that's kind of interesting. But mm-hmm. uh, this whole divining, but what it is, is that it was a source of them being able to find things. And Joseph and Oliver were in this situation where they were still questioning whether or not there were still records to be found from the Nephites or from other civilizations, and if they could find it through the method of divining or using the rod. And so Oliver had gone to God and had asked him about this gift that he'd had that he had used, and this is the confirmation the, the Lord did come in and say, yes, that, that is an okay gift for you to have. In fact, I've given you that gift. And in fact, you wouldn't have that gift, save I, I had given it to you. So with that, though, the Lord trains Oliver to say, listen, I've given you this gift of being able to douse or to rot or to find things or to receive revelation. So doubt not this gift. Hold it in your hands and do marvelous works, and no power shall be able to take it away from you or out of your hands, for it is the work of God. And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that I will grant unto you, and you shall have knowledge concerning it. That's pretty remarkable. <laughs> that's, that, that's, some, that's some next level awesomeness. 
Joseph is really big, and as are the people of that day and age up up in uh, upper state, you know, New York, where Joseph was from, and all the way down into uh, Ohio, where they're at. That whole region was really big into this mystical nature of um, imbuing objects with power. We've already seen Joseph use a rock that he finds while digging a well, calls it a seer stone, and that's what he uses in part to translate the Book of Mormon. We have Oliver here. Now, what's really fascinating is that they later fashion a walking stick for Oliver, and that becomes his official designated and imbued authority uh, as a rod. So that was the stick that he would go out and he would imbue it. And years ago, I remember I read a book um, on temple symbology where it had talked about how Brigham Young eventually becomes in possession of this, this walking stick of Oliver's, this rod of Aaron, Aaron's rod, you know, Moses and Aaron. And mm-hmm. when Aaron had set his rod out in front of Pharaoh's in, in, or in front of the, the, the people of Israel, rather, and that it had blossomed, showing that Aaron had the true authority. So this was symbolically the rod, that rod of Aaron. And so when Brigham Young gets possession of this, and he's in Salt Lake, and he walks around, and he sticks the, his, his cane and his, his rod in the ground, it's actually that rod of Oliver's. Brigham Young plants in the ground, he says, here's where we'll build a temple to our God. And I think it's, is it John Taylor or Wilford Woodruff that builds a little pile of stones there on that place? Wilford Woodruff. Woodruff? Okay. Yeah. And so that becomes the cornerstone. Here's a really interesting aside is that when I was going to BYU, there was a professor there of geology, Dr. Harris. And Dr. Harris had gained a little bit of professional accolades, uh, reputation, as it were, because he was the professor, he was the main authority who was studying the earthquake scarp that was going uh, going to happen down in Indonesia. So if we remember that big earthquake in 2004 that sent that huge tsunami that killed all those people in Indonesia... He was the authority, the scholastic authority that had been studying that earthquake scarp. And for years, he had gone to the Indonesian government to be able to try to get them to understand what this thing was going to happen, that he'd been measuring it, that he, you know, he was a, he was a professor, that he had, he had spent years understanding what this, this was going to do. And when it happened, it was going to send a tsunami. And he was trying to get the government to act, to go down to tell the people that when they see the water go out, that everybody begins to head back uphill, you know, for, mm-hmm. for when that water eventually that big wave comes in, and they basically ignored him. And so I saw, I went through and I sat personally into two lectures of Doctor Harris, describe about how he then personally took it upon himself that through any time that he could, he would fly to Indonesia and he would literally go up the coast and talk to all of the villages and the tribes, the tribal leaders, anybody that he could get to listen to him who lived there, telling him. When you see the water go out, you go up, you run the other way, and you get out of there. And he's accredited for saving countless lives. Hmm. So when that earthquake finally happened, there were thousands upon thousands of thousands of people who were saved and preserved because of his work and what he did to save people there. Well, the reason I say that story is to say another one. Because of his reputation from correctly predicting that, as a professor at BYU, his students would also go up and would measure the Wasatch scarp line the fault line that goes through uh, the Wasatch Front that's just right there right there that runs kind of along the water line of Old Lake Bonneville, there along the, the Wasatch Front. He measures, he goes out with his uh, students every semester, and they, they measure the overpass. And it's been a while since I've been in Utah. I think it's, what, is it 8th North that goes up into Provo Canyon? 
but sounds that over right. I don't something like that. But yeah, sounds right. It's been a while for you too. But when you you go up into Provo Canyon, there's that overpass that uh, that as you're going northbound um, from BYU on I think it's uh, University, you go under this underpass as you go into the into Provo Canyon. Well, he measures that overpass every semester, and every semester it starts to separate a little bit more and a little bit more and a little <laughs> bit more, right? <laughs> so he talks about how he no longer, when he stops at the red light going northbound to turn left onto Ethernet, he no longer stops underneath the bridge. Like he, he he's like a car and a half or two car lengths behind. <laughs> and he said, until it turns green, he says, people are always honking at him. He's like, I'm saving your life. You don't even know it. <laughs> but he, because of his reputation, um, the Indonesian earthquake, and because of his work in studying the... Uh, uh, the Wasatch fault line. The first presidency had called him up when it was President Hinckley, President Monson, and President Faust, and had asked him about his studies of the Wasatch Front and about what kind of earthquake it was going to be. And it's a particular strike-slip fault, and and that basically says that it's going to be a, a certain magnitude. There's a certain parameter of magnitude that it's going to be, I, and I've long since forgot how how big it is, but it's it's significant. And so the first presidency on his recommendation. And that's why if anybody remembers through like 2006, seven or eight, where they closed down the tabernacle on Temple Square, and then they re retrofitted it for earthquake proofing, and then they did it to the church office headquarters, and also to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building through like 2006, seven and eight, that was because of Dr. Harris's recommendation. But as he's telling this story, what always stood out to me was the fact that the Salt Lake Temple at the time received no earthquake proofing whatsoever. And the reason why is because for those who are not familiar with Salt Lake, uh, the Salt Lake County area, is that entire valley used to be an ancient lake bed. It was called Lake Bonneville. The whole foundation of the whole valley is basically on sand. It's a sandbar. And that sandbar continues all the way up into the benches. So right there, but right there where the temple rests, the Salt Lake Temple rests, is that right below the Salt Lake Temple, and it doesn't stick out five feet on either side, on any side, north, south, east, or west, but right on top of the temple, it is built on the only rock foundation in the entire area. The tabernacle's not built on top of it. The church office building's not built on top of it. The other tabernacle just south of uh, the main uh, domed tabernacle, that's not on top of it. And even the Joseph Smith moment, it's only the Salt Lake Temple that sits on top of it. So when Brigham Young goes out there with this Oliver rod of count and he sticks that thing <laughs> down there into the ground, right? And that's where they build and they mark the cornerstone. That's some pretty remarkable stuff, right? It's interesting. But yeah, when uh, Oliver is given this, this rod, he then goes through and they take it to go find plates. Yeah. And that actually gets in here to Revelation. So there's a lot that we were going to say about Revelation too, about how that works, but, uh, Fun story there with the rod. Well, I think the the general theme that I see in these sections here is about the diversities of gifts, particularly diversities of gifts when it comes to revelation. Joseph Smith, his type of revelation had come in different ways. He was used to using a seer stone, and then he receives Urim and Thummim, which I'm guessing is like a different variety of seer stones in one sense. Then we have section seven that talks about how he was able to use the Urim and Thummim to translate a parchment written by John. And the location of this parchment isn't discussed, 
but we're getting to folk magic types of things with seeing stones and divining rods. You know, this is like scrying, right? You, you're reading something that's in another location. So all of these things are very odd and, um, offensive might be too strong a word, but, um, maybe distasteful to our modern sensibilities and cultural isms. We're like, uh, this is weird. <laughs> How can the Lord work in this way? Right. And the fact is, the Lord can work in whatever way we need him to in order for us to understand his work and his love. This again goes back to section one that the Lord speaks to his servants in their weakness according to their language and understanding. And that language, quote unquote, also includes our culturalisms and biases and relics that help us to connect with what we need to connect with, with the divine, to help point us in the direction of having the correct experience. The point being that when they're used in the right way, or when we look to God, that these things don't become something in and of themselves. Joseph Smith and, and Oliver Cowdery and any of the others that kind of followed this tradition of rods or seer stones or, or whatever, it was never a cult to them, right? This all was perfectly fit perfectly well within the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Revelation for them. It, it never really strayed beyond that, especially after, you know, Joseph's experience with the Book of Mormon and the angel Moroni. And so th this is all very interesting how the Lord kind of co-opted those types of practices and traditions to do his work through the people that, that had those traditions and cultural practices deep within them. And so I see in all of these sections a bunch of different ways that the Lord is telling people that they can receive revelation. He talks about it in, in multiple different ways. Um, he talks about speaking peace to our mind. Um, he talks about Holy Ghost being in our mind and in our heart talks about the seer stones. The Urim and Thummim is the implication of all these revelations are through the Urim and Thummim at this point, because that's how Joseph Smith is receiving revelation. As it goes on and he starts translating the Book of Mormon, it actually gets to the point that he doesn't use things at all. He doesn't use the seer stone anymore. He doesn't use the Urim and Thummim anymore to do the translation. So all that to say that those things aren't objectively necessary. They are simply the subjective means by which the Lord trained Joseph Smith into his calling. And he can do the same type of thing with us. And if our cultural sensibilities are averse to these types of things, then, then so be it. I mean, mine are. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> I personally can't imagine doing it in this way. But there may be ways that I go about experiencing God and communicating with him and receiving revelation that would seem really odd to others. And thus, I like this advice that he gives to Oliver. He says, make not thy gift known unto any, save it be those who are of thy faith. Trifle not with sacred things. Well, that's a really interesting thing. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Share what's sacred with people who can appreciate the sanctity of it, and then it will build their faith. 
And if you discount that, then it can actually weird people out, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) It can make them kind of question that. It's not edifying to them in the very least. Yeah, I like the way that you're putting that because in a lot of ways, when when I, I know when I read this the first time about Oliver and this, I was like, man. Like, I got to go get me a stick. Is that how it works? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, and so, you know, but in, in a lot of set, that became more of a distraction to me because for Oliver, this was common. This was his world. This was what he was already used yeah, to. It felt very natural he, to him. Right. It was very, very, very natural. And so it's the Lord finding what's natural for us to be able to speak to us. And what is good for some, sometimes what is uniquely good for me that has worked in prayer and in sacred moments for me may not work for another person. That may be a distraction. But the point of a lot of the things that we've talked about, like with prayer and with other methods of coming to God, is not to give you a new way of doing things, that this is the the way that's right for me and this is what's going to work, but that it's almost like to give permission to explore the way that God speaks to you. Right. Because a lot of the time as a church, and, and I, and I think this is really appropriate with, uh, verse nine, or with section nine rather, because when Oliver is given the go ahead from God to translate, because that's the other part of this whole, all of these sections is that Oliver had wanted to come to God to get permission to translate like Joseph. And so God's like, yeah, sure, go for it. But then Oliver didn't really study anything out. He just thought that the go ahead meant that he would automatically get this gift, right? And so he goes to translate and, it doesn't work out. And and so he's like, well, what gives? God said I could do it. And then that's when we really get section nine. And in section nine, the Lord counsels with Oliver. And I love how patient and loving. He says, be patient, my son. This is verse three. Be patient, my son, for it is wisdom in me, and it is not expedient that you should translate it this time. Behold, the work which you are called to do is to write for my servant Joseph. And behold, it is because that you did not continue as you commenced when you began to translate that I have taken away this privilege from you. Do not murmur, my son, for it is wisdom in me that I have dealt with you after this manner. Behold, you have not understood. Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would just give it to you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. Okay. So here we have it set up that Oliver was just, just thought that God was going to do it for him. And here's where the famous two verses about Revelation come into play. And Mm -hmm. I have a little bit to say about it. But behold, I say unto you, you must study it out in your heart and your mind. And then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. But if it is not right, you shall have no such feelings. But you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. All right, so here's the burning of the bosom. That you know, that's what this scripture has been called, the burning of the bosom. And we use this all the time. And I remember how frustrated I was as a youth when the way that this was taught was that this is the way to experience God. Not that this is a way to experience God, but this is the way to experience God. Hmm. Now, this I can say. I have experienced God. But I've also never once had a burning in the bosom any kind of burning sensation, any kind of warmth, or fit, that is not the way that I personally experience God. Maybe one day it will be. But for me right now, this is not the way that God speaks to me. Now, I have also personally, I have had a stupor of thought. I get those quite a bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right? But I have not had a burning in the bosom. 
And I have known people who have. And they are very special sacred experiences to those people. And yet we have to recognize and learn that what was here for Oliver was here for Oliver. This is not right. God giving a 100% prescriptive moment. This is, hey, Oliver, here's what it is. Now for us, if we were here, God would be speaking to the method upon which we feel God. And so we get to have the unique opportunity and the excitement of learning what that method is. That's where I think the real joy and the real power of these scriptures come out, is that God is willing to talk with us, and then we get to have the excitement to go figure it out. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I remember studying through these verses and and coming to this concept here and and thinking, you know, that's not that's not quite how it happens for me, but you know, the Lord is talking to Oliver here. This is how it happened for Oliver. And then I would often bring up, you know, this scripture was often brought up as, oh, well, the Lord doesn't just give things to you. You know, you need to, you need to do your own work and then ask him if it's right or not. And that's how you get revelation. Well, I mean, that may be one thing for a certain context, but I can't tell you the number of the times that the Lord did just outright give me something, you know, like, <laughs> so that's not the universal uh, pattern for revelation. This is a pattern for a specific time and person for how they were supposed to proceed in asking certain questions of the Lord. And I see wisdom in it, you know, the Lord the Lord talks about it here, and, and he was uh, attempting to to bring Oliver into that creative process. I see this as akin to the experience that the brother of Jared had, right? In bringing the stones up and asking the Lord to touch them. And and the Lord's like, yeah, I mean, if that's the way you want to do it, sure, let's do it that way. <laughs> you know, um, it, it didn't have to be done that way, but that's the way that the brother of Jared felt it should be done. And, that, and the Lord said, okay, we'll do it that way. That's fine. And so I kind of see a little bit of that, of that here. This is his way of doing it. And so the Lord is explaining that to him and saying, hey, this is how you're going to have the best outcome for yourself. And and as you learn and grow, you will grow into a greater understanding. Just as Joseph is is growing in his, you know, becoming more adept, I guess you could say, at being able to recognize revelation and, and communicate in that way. Yeah, Absolutely. And I love, you know, going back, you know, kind of going back uh, to a previous podcast we did about Joseph Smith's translation abilities. He started with the Yerman Thummim, and that provided him the means to where he, he graduates here with this with this stone in the hat, the seer stone, until finally he doesn't need it at all. And so it, the Lord is so merciful in giving us what we need when we need it. You know, I often wonder, did Oliver lose the stick or did he simply recognize that he was no longer, it was no longer necessary for him? Mm-hmm. That this external object, you know, Joseph was always very big into imbuing objects with power. I told you a little bit of a story. I even have some personal family history with this because my, I know it's my great, 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 one of those greats. <laughs> three or Grandfather, four or five, something. <laughs> three or four like or five. I'll have to, sorry, Grandpa, I'll have to look it up. But it was Graham Coltrane. And Graham Coltrane was one of the original uh, was one of the original followers there in, in uh, Nauvoo and down in Missouri. And he was the brother of Zebedee Coltrane, who was uh, as mentioned in the DNC. Graham Coltrane, my great 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 
great grandfather was also in the school of the prophets. And so as I got to go back to Kirtland and see the book that they have there in the Newell K. Whitney store, I got to look in there and see my grandfather. And in our own uh, history, uh, family history on, uh, on family search, if you look him up on his profile, it shows that there's a story where when they were building uh, Nauvoo and they're draining the swamps and everybody had gotten malaria and uh, they were, they're suffering on both sides of the river. Joseph had woken up Graham in the morning and says like, Hey, listen, w- this is ridiculous. We got to go. We're going to go heal everybody. So he gets Graham on, who's on the West side of the river to go, go with him to the East side. And the deal was, is that if Graham went with Joseph through the day, then Joseph would come back at the end of the day and lay his hands and heal his own family, the Coltrane family. And so the whole day Graham spends with the prophet Joseph going out and healing everyone. And that's when, you know, the miraculous stories that are documented in church history. And at the end of the day, you know, Graham Coltrane seeks to have Joseph honor his word to come back across the river to lay hands on his own family, to heal his own family, where Joseph is like, brother Coltrane, I'm just too tired. And so, but he reaches into the back of his pocket and he pulls out a, a handkerchief and he imbues the handkerchief with power, right? So that he gives it to, to Graham and he says, but rub your family with this handkerchief and they'll be made whole. And so Graham with faith goes across the river to his family, rubs them down. And the story he records is that they were immediately made hit well. And so a picture of the, the handkerchief is, you know, I guess it was quartered and it was, you know, cut into a couple of uh, four different pieces. But anyway, I don't know who has in possession of that nowadays or if it was even preserved, but at least a remnant of it was preserved and there's an image of it in my family history. But the point of the story is that Joseph was very big and as were many of these men into the frontier concepts of imbuing things with power and items with power to where they would, they would carry and, and, and carry this mystical effect of healing. And so there's even stories of Several several of these rods or walking sticks being made from planks from Joseph and Hiram's um, coffins that they carried from Carthage yeah. to Nauvoo, and so there were there were oak planks, and so they were you know the blood stain or the, you know, the blood some of them were blood stained, and they had made walking sticks. They cut them in and they cut them into several long lengths, and several members of the twelve, especially the the original twelve that had been preserved that had not apostatized were all given some of these planks that they carved into walking sticks. And several of them report in their own family histories or in their own uh, personal records or records from their children um, that were recorded that their fathers would, they or their fathers would go through and would heal people. Willard Richards would put his staff on someone's head and would heal them. And uh, Heber C. Kimball would also receive answers like Oliver Cowdery, where his source of revelation would be to hold the rod out and ask it yes, no questions, and whether or not it moved or it didn't move would be his confirmation or it would be a no. And so that's a lot of the way that these frontier people, that that's the world that they knew. And so God revealed himself through those methods. Now, if I were to go out and to do that now, I, I think for me personally, that would be more conjuring things than it would be, because that's not normal to me. That's not my worldview. That's not mm-hmm. that's not something that's, that's normal here. So if I were to go out, I would be going out with with a purpose that is outside my context to try to tap into something. But if I were to search for something that's common in my own way, in my own, my own language, as it were, or custom, that's where God would touch me. And so that's where we come into recognizing that a lot of these things, when we read church history, we're like, man, these things are so outlandish. And I just, I, I can't almost believe that they're doing these things, but we have to recognize that God is always reaching down to touch us where we are at. 
And I love the point that you made there and going back to section one in our weaknesses and in our language and in all those things to reach down and to grab us where we are. What an amazing thing that we have a God who does that. It is imperative that everyone learns how God speaks to them and that they speak to God in that way. And then he will teach them. And if he needs to teach them a better way, then he will teach them a better way. But it's imperative to every person's salvation, so to speak, right? That they learn how God speaks to them and keep that sacred, hold that sacred so that they can, can recognize it and, and know what it, what it means to them. Absolutely. Well, Ben, we finish up with section nine. Do you have any last thoughts or anything else to say about it? Um, not really. I mean, there is, I did want to just make an honorable mention of <laughs> verse, verse 21 of section six has one of my favorite descriptions of Christ that has caused me many moments of, of pondering and pause and thinking on this and, and what it means. I love when the scriptures use this, when Christ says, I am the light which shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. That really has endless depth to it for me. I've, I've sat with that for quite many sessions. Yeah, I love that. For me, that scripture has, has cha- it's changed meanings for me several times in my life. And I think most recently it's taking on a meaning that when we are, we are always the true self. That which was made in the image of God, that true self, that's the light. It's always shining. But the fact is, is that in our darkness, in the darkness that surrounds us in that false self, we can't often see that true self shining forward. The darkness that we labor under, the light still shines there, but we don't have the ability of seeing it. And that's really where I see the beauty of repentance in allowing us, and God is allowing us the patience and the opportunity to be able to throw off that false view of ourself. All of those identities that, that encumber our relationship with God so that we can truly see the light that shines in the darkness where we couldn't see it before. Yeah, I, I love that too. Well, in closing, I have wanted for, for a few times to give a big shout out and a big thanks to our editors. <laughs> it usually gets yeah. down to our closing time where I've skipped over it. And so I apologize, but we would not be able to long do, overdue. It is long overdue. <laughs> <laughs> and we will make this more of a, a regular thing, but, uh, but Kyle Swingle and Catherine Hamilton are our two editors. And man, when we're done recording and we upload it and, and they take over and they do it for the rest of the week. And by the time Sunday and Monday roll around, it's done and we're, I'm able to just upload it. And if, if it weren't for them, uh, we, this would not be able to be. So Kyle and Catherine, thank you so very much for everything that you do for your sacrifice for each hour and a half of these podcasts. And, and there's about six hours worth of editing that has to go on in the back end. And so between those two volunteers. And we only pay minimum wage. So <laughs> I think they, I think they would be happy with minimum wage. <laughs> we don't pay no, they are, they are, they are true volunteers and they are, they're very gracious with their time. And I am very, very grateful to them for everything that they do. So thank you guys for everything. That yes. You do. Thank you guys. 
And to everyone listening, thank you for sticking around with us and for uh, and for listening. Let us know if you have any questions. Uh, share it if uh, if you found something valuable in these. Share it. And uh, as I know, many people have contacted me saying that they do, and they share it quite quite a bit. And so, thank you uh, to you as well. But until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan, and I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening.